0: In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about whether you should love what you're working on. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 403. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where this week, sir? Well, I, uh, I started a
1: local D&D meetup group. That is so cool. A friend of mine and I play with our kids. And uh, so I've got two sons. and He has a son and two daughters. And so one of those daughters played a little bit with us. And she's just like, yeah, this isn't for me. I hate this. I don't want to deal with boys. I think that's really what it was. But uh, the other three and him and I play. So we wanted to start up a group where it was act- we were actually playing with adults because kids can be a little bit difficult to keep on track sometimes. So he knew a couple of people. And then I started a, a meetup.com group to try and find at least one more player and uh, we ended up getting there's five of us now and we met for the first time earlier this week so started up a game it's we expected it to go for a couple of months and we'll just meet every week and see how things go
0: that's fun did you, you say you used meetup.com yep awesome and uh you playing fifth edition
1: yep Yeah, the latest version, uh, most of the, I think two or three of the people who were playing with haven't played in like 20 or 30 years. Um, You know, then they went to college, had kids and kind of got out of it for a while. And now they're coming back. And so far, it's been good. I mean, we only had the one session, which was about three hours long, but we spent some time before that at a different time creating characters. But it's good so
0: far. Were they marveling at like the ascending armor classes and there's no two-hit armor? There's no Thaco. I don't know if you played second edition, but did did they they have to read the player's handbook or or you just caught them up to speed verbally?
1: Yeah, I caught them up to speed. I was like, here are the differences from when, because I asked them like which versions they played. So up to second edition, they had the Thaco and then in the third edition, they switched over to the D20. So yeah, I just kind of explained those things, and then one person—he still plays a lot of uh, version three five, but he's never played four or five before. So I looked it up and found a place on—I think it was Reddit—where they basically laid out, hey, here are the differences between version three five and version five.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more similarities than I thought. I know five is more stripped down. There's less, what is it like feats, and there's a bunch of stuff. The prestige classes, I think, are maybe those are only in four. But I, so I never played three and a half or or, or three point five or four but I'm pretty familiar with them at this point. Yeah, I feel like I mean I know there's there's always a, you know, controversy around it, but I played I played basic, I played expert, and then I played first edition and then I was got familiar with second edition, which is where they introduced Thaco. I'm pretty sure first edition had it was all table-based, was my memory. And then stopped, you know, got into sports and, and music and stuff and then just came back into it as my son got old enough to play. And I remember, like my nostalgia is for basically f- probably first edition, maybe basic, but the rules are so janky there that that like I couldn't go back to it. But I remember googling like I, I'm coming back to D and D. Should I try fifth edition or should I go back to first edition? And there was all these discussions about it. And in general, I mean, the, the consensus, the general consensus was that especially for bringing new players who've never played anything before, like bring them to fifth edition. It's it's a pretty nice rule set. It's honed and refined and it's like a piece of software that's gotten better, you know? I think there was some bloat, perhaps. People could argue, you know, as you got three, five, and and four, mostly four, I think, people had some issues with. But then five was almost like a kind of a, a partial rewrite or something where, where someone refactored a lot of code, added some unit tests, and <laughs> is a terrible analogy. I don't know why I'm doing this, but, but I really get... The, and when I dove into 5, I was like, this is a really fun game to play. Like, this is so much... It's so much less about the mechanics of the game, which is most my memory of first edition. With all these tables I was looking up and all that stuff. It's so much less about that, and it's more about getting into the characters and, and, and the combat and the adventure and, you know, the, the fun of it. And it was cool. I could teach, I taught my son, I think when he was seven or eight and he picked up the mechanics pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. I, I really liked what they did with the fifth edition as well. It's just so much more streamlined and it's, it's simpler without being simplistic that's probably the best way that i would describe it and you're right like there's there's a lot less reliance on tables and the one thing i really like that i've read about which is the difference between three five and five is that in older editions there was a lot of reliance on stacking things to get more powerful so you'd stack your armor and various other things and in this like you don't really have to do that and for the most part it's just like oh you you know you have advantage and you know you get to roll 220 20-sided die and take the best one and that's that's great except when you know as an example i was explaining to these to these guys like hey this is what this looks like and i roll 220 side and i roll a one and a two so <laughs>
0: that's a like, god uh, bad example, bad example, bad example. Bad
1: example. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, that's funny so for us we're recording a little bit in advance but if all goes well we have closed on our new house in minneapolis and frankly all of our stuff will have been moved because it, it the move's scheduled for just a couple days after and we'll be in the process of unpacking boxes and and probably hanging things on walls. And I really am kind of looking forward to having that process, the chaos ending, right? Because already right now I'm sitting in our old house and you know, there's things off the walls and there's a few things in boxes and it just everyone is a little bit disjointed. You know, you kind of get that feeling of like, we're in process, we're in pro, you know, where where was that one thing? I can't find it. Or it's even just a visual, a visual cue of like, yeah, there's just kind of some chaos around me. And so there's this unsettled feeling I feel like with every family member kind of being in a place that's feels like our house, but it's a little different because there's not, there's nothing on the walls as an example. So I'm looking forward to, um, you know, to, to feeling better about that.
1: Like an Airbnb where everybody moved out and you just like walked
0: in. (laughs) Yeah. And, but even worse than that, it's, it's our house that's familiar, you know, everything's packed up and stuff. So So it'll be good, but it's definitely a move up for us in terms of the house is bigger and nicer and we can do things, you know, I'm already looking at what smart home things I'm going to install because we have several um, Amazon Echoes and there's all the controlling you can do and even starting simple stuff like light switches, and getting more advanced with security stuff, and and operating garage door openers and that stuff. So I'm kind of nerding out on that a little bit. Something I haven't been able to do, right? Because that all that stuff, I I'm not going to invest time in that in a rental, and it really hasn't come big time into fruition. It's been a couple years since I've uh, you know owned a house now. So I'm kind of excited at the potential of, of geeking out with some of that.
1: I end the only other thing I have is that I I recently fixed a JavaScript bug that would sometimes prevent people from logging into BlueTick, but not all the time. And I could never replicate it, which sucked. Yeah, that sucks. It, It had to do with like Angular promises with the JavaScript and like one would trigger and it says, oh, go ahead and log in. And then it goes to grab all the data and it doesn't have like the local token saved. And it was just a matter of it didn't fully save it before it had actually tried to reach out and grab all the data that it literally just authorized itself to get so anyway just because there was a the race condition like it worked fine for just about everybody and then there were i think certain, it was either certain browser combinations or like i couldn't even nail it down to like say it was just this operating system in this particular situation but if the latency tended to be high enough then it tended to not work
0: yeah that's tough javascript's tough still, uh, client-side JavaScript is still so hard because of... I shouldn't say so hard. It still has those edge case things where the browsers handle it differently. And if you can't reproduce it, it's just how, you know, how do you fix that stuff every once in a while? That's the thing. Again, if you have 10 users, it's unlikely that something will happen. But when you get 10,000, 30,000 people using, using your app, like bizarre edge cases come up and you just... You just some oftentimes can't are completely unable to reproduce it. And If you can't reproduce it, you're pretty hard to fix it. You know.
1: Yeah, and in this case, it was I went down the path of like in in Chrome, there's this uh, ability to say, oh, like use a different emulate as if this was running on a 3G connection or something like that, or even slower. And even those, I couldn't. I still could not replicate it. It just had to do. I'm pretty sure that it had to do with like a like certain types of browser combinations and what other plugins you had loaded. And based on those things, it would either trigger the race condition or it wouldn't. And sometimes it would work like actually the vast, vast majority of the time it would work fine. And then just these little occasions where certain things would be screwed up and it just wouldn't.
0: So cool. Today we're going to do kind of, I don't know if it's a thought experiment as much as it's a discussion of, of this topic that I hear come up now and again. And given that I'm at a at a, you know, I'll say not even an inflection point, but at a point where I'm kind of thinking about, Hey, what could happen next for me? You know, what's going to come next? I, and I know that a lot of people are thinking at any given time, like, Hey, what, what project am I going to work on? And, and what, what, type of niche should I go after? And there's always this balance between balancing your interest in something and the opportunity that it has. And so I think the question we kind of want to explore today is, do you need to love what it is you're working on and what that looks like, right? It's like you could take a business that sells beach towels online and you could say, well, I really, beach towels are awesome and I'm really into them and I collect them and I'm super interested in it. Or you could say, well, I'm not interested in beach towels, but I am interested in e-commerce and e-commerce really excites me. So you have that interest. Or you could say, well, I'm not that interested in e-commerce, but I am interested in just running a business. And this is one that I can do in my spare time. So you have interest there. Or, you know, it's kind of a continuum or further over, you could say, I'm not even interested in running a business, but I just want the freedom that it provides. And so kind of one of those four places on the continuum, I think is what, what we're going to look at today and kind of balancing, I think on one end, there is interest. And on the other end of that spectrum, there's opportunity. And I think they're potentially, if you can get them to overlap, maybe it's less about, I'm sorry, you know, two ends of a spectrum and more about it's it's like a Venn diagram, right? Where you have circles and the circle could be, these are all my interests. And that includes role-playing games and it includes stock market investing. And it includes, you know, Legos and I don't know, other things that that someone might like. And running a business might also be one of those. And then opportunity could be things that overlap with those, like, hey, there's a real good opportunity starting a Lego RPG site that no one's done and you can make a bunch of money at it. That's not true because you probably wouldn't make any money. But and then there's a bunch of opportunities, you know, like selling dog food online or, you know, starting a business that you have no interest in and you kind of got to figure out and and evaluate for yourself which of these are you going to go after? How are you going to balance those? I think is a better way to put it.
1: You so you mentioned Venn diagram in there. I think the one misleading thing about using the the phrase Venn diagram is most people think of it as like this mechanism for overlapping like either two or three things. But when you start adding more than three things in, it's almost like more of a three dimensional model at that point. And it's still a Venn diagram, but it's just really much more difficult to visualize because some of those things just don't overlap at all, or they only overlap with they overlap with everything, but it's also difficult to put them in if
0: it was actually like a 3D model. I think that's a good point. And, you know, a Venn diagram or, or a, a continuum, you know, a single line, an axis with one thing on one end and one thing on another. These are just really abstractions, right? It's ways that we can describe things. And at a certain point, abstractions always break down. So I think that is something to keep in mind as, as we talk this through. You know, there's there's a lot of folks and there's a lot of conversations that I've seen around this idea of like, should you follow your passion or should you just go after the opportunity? And people try to make it binary and they say, well, if you just follow your passion, you'll get there or you purely have to go after opportunity. And, and I believe like the conclusion that we're probably going to get to is that it's a blend of those and it's, it's figuring out what you can be passionate or interested in, but also blend that with something that holds some kind of opportunity. And I think to, to start to think about it, there's this question that I, you know I want to throw out. It's like, what drives you? And you can answer that in the abstract or you can take a personality test. Yay. Have you ever taken the, <laughs> the Enneagram? I don't think I have, Now, Yeah, it's it's – we'll link it up in the show notes, but it's spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, Enneagram. And you can take it for free online – and it puts you, I mean, you know, it's a, it's like the, what is it? The Myers-Briggs where psychologists kind of like Sherry says, you know, there's some value there, but it's really not like scientifically or research, perhaps as a psychologist, I would take it with a grain of salt versus a true like psychologist administered test. But there is still some value to these things. I even think like strengths finder. 2.0, I think is is good. And it, it gave me some insight into, a little more insight into who I am, even if that's not the most, you know, academically rigorous test of, of anyone. But the reason I bring up the Enneagram is you basically take this test online. I think it takes about 20 minutes. And then it gives you uh, kind of a couple numbers. It's one through nine And each number corresponds to like a personality type, right? So like number three, as an example, a lot of folks that I've met in business wind up with this, and this is the achiever. And it says, there's always some pros and cons. And it says the success-oriented, pragmatic type, adaptive, excelling, driven, and image conscious, Right, So the, those are folks who tend to, I think some startup founders are driven by the achievement. They just want to achieve whether they're trying to fight this voice in their in their head, it's the voice of their father or the voice of someone who told them they can never succeed, or maybe it's just a drive they have to make money, uh, or maybe it's just a drive to, to show everyone or show themselves that they can do it. But there's something about just doing it for the achievement's sake. And they don't necessarily, in my experience don't necessarily care about the process of getting there or about what they create along the way or about they could achieve in a business that sells sells cell phones or is a GPS startup or is, you know, selling whatever beach towels online. But if they built an eight-figure business in any of those, they would feel like they'd achieve something and they'd be happy. Versus, I believe it's number six, and I think that's me, and it's the loyalist. It says the committed, security-oriented type. Engaging, responsive, anxious, and suspicious, and a big part of the loyalists, When, if you read through the description, is there's this this sense of creating and needing to create something, put it into the world, and to own this creation and to advance it and to make it interesting. And what was funny is in, in interacting some with some folks once you know Drip was acquired, interacting at lead pages. Several of us took this test, and it was pretty obvious. Like there were folks who it didn't matter to them what business we were in. They just wanted to go big and going big for the sake of going big was awesome to them. And for me, it was like, no, I'm actually here to build stuff. Like I'm a baker and I am the guy who writes books. I'm the guy who creates podcasts and, and writes software and builds interesting things. And hopefully That's why I want the money is so that I can go work on these interesting things, right? It's to have the freedom to go do interesting things, not just achieving for the sake of achievement.
1: You definitely fit that loyalist. I mean, you're definitely a suspicious and shady looking guy. (laughs)
0: It is. huh? I mean, that's the thing. When you read any of these, there's always some kind of negatives and it's like, oh, am I really? And it's like, yeah, I probably am. I probably am all those things, you know, but engaging and responsible is certainly fits as well. The reason I bring the Enneagram up is that you could take any number of tests, but it's interesting to spend 20 minutes and get some insight and to read the descriptions and think, am I here to achieve? Because if you are, then your need to love the business or the specific niche or whatever is you're working on is probably going to be a lot less than someone who needs to love what it is they're working on and to be enthusiastic about it. Number seven is an enthusiast. There's other of these numbers that really kind of point more towards like, yeah, you kind of need to love what you do or else you're going to bail on it. And so I think it's interesting whether you take this or you just think about it to yourself. Certain people know that there's no chance that they're not going to be happy working on something that they're not super interested in every day.
1: I think in general, when you look at these types of, uh, you know, personality tests or things that will help to describe or categorize you, it's easy to kind of write off the 20 minutes that it takes to do any one of these. And as you said, like, I I think that you, if it's not something that is rigorously given or tested, like if it's a 15 or 20 minute test, it's not going to be very rigorous. If you spent an hour answering questions and you're answering 60, 100, 200 questions or something like that, it's a little bit more. So those you probably have to take with less of a grain of salt, but regardless of which one you take, I think you're better served by Looking at the results of it as in how far you skew in a particular direction, you know, regardless of what direction that actually is. And and as you said, every single one of these has pros and cons associated with it. Like people who exhibit different traits are going to have different interests and they're going to dislike different things. But when you're when you're going through those, like it's important to not just take a cursory look at those and like the different personalities or different categories that they could potentially lump you in and then just not even take the test because taking the test itself is going to tell you how far you skew in one direction or or, or the other. Because you can look at these, I mean, I could look through these nine that are here for the Enneagram and I could probably say, oh, well, I associate with four or five of them or even six or seven, but that doesn't tell you how strongly you associate with them. And that is even more important than being able to put yourself in one of those categories.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I I didn't mean to downplay this from the start because when I say take it with a grain of salt, I mean... Don't base every life choice on your Enneagram result. The Enneagram has been given to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And so it is research-based and it is like a viable test. But as you said, when it's only asking so many questions and it's 20 minutes, it's just there's less rigor there than a test that is. You know, a lot of the psychological battery tests that are given, you'll sit there for two, three hours for them to get a full picture of stuff. So it's, it's just a nice taste and a nice direction. And I do think I, I like these things because I always learn something about myself and it's typically something that's a little bit of a blind side for me. Typically, I'm like, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. And then they'll throw something else in and it's like, oh... That's true, but I hadn't realized that, you know, it's one, the, ang- the anxious or suspicious thing. It's like, yeah, no, that's, that's, a good, that's a good point. I do tend to not trust people until I've known them for a while. And like, how can I, how, how is that a plus for me? And how is that something that maybe I need to, need to work around? So, but I think the interesting thing and the kind of the question that fr- this frames is like, are you the type of person who can work on things that they don't love? Like that may be the question to ask yourself. Certain people just know this. I remember Jason Roberts on Texing used to always say, No, I gotta love it, or I'm just not gonna do it. Like he's very much a passion player. You know, he he would only start ideas that were super exciting to him, and he could never go into a niche that was, you know, selling beach tiles. It just would, he would have completely petered out. Whereas for me, my goal of financial independence was more important to me than needing to love, you know, that I was selling the duck boat plans and the the bonsai tree ebook. And, you know, in the early days, the the beach towels and stuff, those were high probability of success things for me based on my tool belt. And I was able to build those into, you know, collectively into six figure income and replace everything. That, so I bought my own freedom. Then I moved more into things that I enjoyed, right? That's when I started doing Hittail and Drip. And even during that time, obviously doing microconf and this podcast and stuff was, was part of that. But there's kind of this, again, I don't know if it's a spectrum or if it's a line or whatever, but I, I always think about this one example of to optimize for opportunity, you could sell coffins online. And to optimize for interest, if you love watching movies, you could review movies online, right? Or if you like role-playing games, you could review role-playing games online. And those two are massively intention, right? And the role-playing games and their movie reviews it's just going to be so hard to make a full-time living at that. Yes, there's a handful of people who do it, but it is really, really hard and it's a ton of work compared to selling something that's really boring like accounting software or, I mean, coffins online. It's I, I say it partially as a joke, but I remember a venture capitalist using this as an example of, them wanting founders who are really into what they're doing. And this venture capitalist said, you know, during the dot-com boom, when everything was going online, pets.com and, you know, all the, the grocery delivery and all that, there was some entrepreneurs who were pitching them like, a really inefficient market is the the coffin market, right? And it's just this it's a cottage industry, it's, the markup is outrageous, people don't haggle, you know, it's just this weird time. And the guy was like, there's huge opportunity here and we can make a ton of money and save money for consumers. And I believe mattresses are like this too, right? The mattresses, the markup has always been huge. And then Casper has come along and, and really done something. There's a ton of opportunity there. And the VC said, I kept asking the guys, why do you want to do this coffin startup or funeral startup? And they're like, well, because there's opportunity there. And the VC didn't fund them because he believes that... You need to really be into the whole space and love the space and and this and that. And that's fine. That's his belief, right? That's his thesis of of funding people. But I think when you ask yourself, you can have the continuum of you may not love mattresses or care anything about them. But if you're really interested in in building a a big business, running Casper would probably be an interesting slash fun thing for you to do if you're an achiever. You know, if you just want to achieve, you can build an eight, nine figure business and really not care much about the product you sell.
1: Yeah, I, I can think of any number of businesses that I would think it would be interesting to start and go for, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a, a business opportunity there as well. I mean, you, just because you love something. And that, and that I think that's what's always bugged me about the do what you love advice, which is just because you love it doesn't mean it can actually make a business. Like it, that advice kind of glosses over the fact that there may just not be a business there for it. So I don't know. I it's, I think there's a, difference between doing it because you love it versus doing it because you want to also make an a income from it and that kind of goes back to the venn diagrams that you were talking about like there has to be a clear intersection of multiple things in order for it to work for you based on whatever your goal is if you just want to do it to have fun go for it you know that you don't have to also make money but if the venn diagram includes making a full-time living from it then the business opportunity has to support that and if it doesn't then it's not
0: going to work Right. And some lucky few get to do both, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk loved wine and he turned that into, you know, a business. Right. And it, it does happen. It's just how many other people try to do the exact same thing and it didn't work versus if there really is opportunity there, the the odds of you even getting a base hit. And I think that's the thing is like, are you willing to have a higher chance of success, but enjoy, perhaps enjoy things a little less along the way? Cause you're not doing everything that you love. Maybe you know, you're just going for that single or that double. But if it brings you kind of financial freedom that you could then work on stuff you love later, but you got to do a few years of not terrible drudgery. It's not like you're working nine to five for someone else, but you know, it, it's weighing those two things. I think that kind of leads me to a question of like, tell me what, like, what do you love about blue tick? Do you love the idea of of, you know, warm outbound email, you know, or is it, is it you love building software and want to figure out a way to make money from it and sustain yourself full time? Is it that you love building businesses? Is it, there's got to be, you know, something in there that drives you day to day, but I don't get the feeling that you woke up two years ago and said, oh man, all I want to think about all the time is like email deliverability and how to hook into the, you know, the Gmail API.
1: Yeah, I definitely did not think of that. And of course I don't hook into the Gmail API because it doesn't work very well. <laughs> but <laughs> Nice. I think the thing that I keep coming back to is that – it actually solves a genuine business problem, first of all, and second, like I like the people that I work with. So, like the customers who come to me and they're like, "Oh, I have this problem and I need to be able to fix it." I mean, I've taken various personality tests in the past, and one of the things that tends to come out at or very close to the top of the list at almost every time is that I'm a a people person. So, like I care very deeply about like a much smaller number of relationships, but like people is a, a main focus for me. So. If I were to sell a business for $20 million and I was the sole stockholder, for example, I wouldn't just keep it all. Like my inclination would be to share that with the people who helped get me. And there's certainly people who would take the opposite approach and say, well, I took all the risks. I did everything. Or, you know, I I own 100% of it, so I should get everything. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just not my personality. So there's that side of it where I like helping other people, which, you know, partly why I do the podcast, partly why we run Founder Cafe together and why we run MicroConf. Like, that's kind of important to me. And running Bluetick, I get to work hand in hand with a lot of different people in a lot of different businesses. And yes, it ultimately benefits me financially as well. But at the same time, I know that deep down, I'm actually solving a problem for them and it does help their business.
0: Yeah. And I think that's important, an important thing to know. You know, you look around at different examples, think of Dan and Ian with Tropical MBA, like they, I'm pretty sure they weren't that excited about cat furniture and valet podiums, but they were excited about the prospect of freedom, about the prospect of starting their own business. Ian's certainly a maker, right? He's interested. He was the the designer of the stuff in the early days. And I think they're excited just about building businesses and such. And so that's that balance of they're excited about enough things about those spaces and they saw tremendous opportunity there that they're willing to, to dive in. I felt the same way about hit tail and drip. I mean, I have always liked SEO. I've done a lot of it and I've always liked, I've always done a lot of email marketing and and used many ESPs, but I'm not as, I'm not as passionate about those things as I am, say some of the hobbies that I do, you know, such as playing guitar or playing tabletop games or even, you know, personal finance and and stock investing. But those, those hobby things are just so much harder to turn into real businesses. Right. And so I kind of Combined that opportunity uh, with SEO and, and email marketing with the interest that I have in those topics and then built businesses out of them. And I think that that's probably the the conclusion that I would leave folks with is it's like you may not be super excited about, the, about online classified ads or about selling beach towels or whatever. But are there other other, other things that you, that you can do? And it's about knowing yourself, right? You know, if Jason Roberts, you know, again, coming back to him or, or someone like him, I mean, there are other people out there who just really need to love what they're working on. And a lot of those folks become indie game developers, you know, or they, they build software for, for guitar effects. I used to work with a guy who, who built that on the side because he was so into the music and that's all he wanted to do was be around the music. And that's cool. But for him, it's going to, if ever he achieves financial freedom, it's going to take decades and it's going to take just a lot more risk there, right? A lot less chance of success because you're stacking the cards against you in exchange for being able to be really passionate about what it is you're working on. And that's the trade-off that that you have to make. And I think each of us as individuals has to think through that and, you know, think about how, how much it is you desire to work on something you love versus perhaps, you know, having more of a chance of that success.
1: And I wonder how much of our uh, like the the decisions that people who are listening to this podcast make, or just entrepreneurs in general, I wonder how much of those decisions are influenced more by what they see as a potential business opportunity versus what their interests are. Because I I talk to a lot of people like, oh, I need an idea for my app. I don't have any ideas. I mean, that's a very common thing that people will say. And it's most of the time, I think it's because they don't want to build something that somebody else has built or build a business that is very much like another business. But at the same time, those things can be very successful. And if you have your own take on it, your own ideas about how to take that to fruition, then you, you can certainly make it work. But if they just don't have those ideas or they think that they don't have those ideas, then they're not going to move forward with
0: them. Right. And if you're working on a business you hate every day, then obviously that's not a good solution either. And I mean, I, in all honesty, when I look, I think there's a lot of approaches. We've kind of c- gone through them here. The approach I took was in the early days, my interest was financial freedom. And I just kind of slogged it away on a bunch of businesses that I didn't have a ton of interest in, but I was learning and learning is exciting to me. And I think a lot of folks in our audience probably feel the same way, right? That just the act of, of learning new things could potentially keep their interest. And so then as I built more and more of those up, then I was able to go into things I was more interested in, like let's say Hittail and Drip, right? With SEO and the email. And then now that I'm at the point where I have, you know, the, the luxury of more time to invest in something I'm working on, and it doesn't need to be that that big hit. I may even sway further into I'm only going to do stuff that I really, really enjoy. You know, maybe it is. Maybe my next thing is nothing like anything I've done in the past, and it's truly like, yeah, I'm going to build. You know, I mentioned it a little bit. I'm I'm going to build a you know an authority website in this topic that I just think is super interesting and see what happens. And maybe I spend two years on it and I I enjoy it because it's a hobby and it never does anything. So what, you know, but I, I wouldn't have personally, I would have hated doing that, you know, 10 years ago because I would have been hating my day job while I did this, you know, and I didn't want to have that, that pull. I wanted to achieve that, that freedom first. And so I do think that there can be steps along the way of kind of shifting and that it's not this, this one size fits all, or even this permanent approach for each individual.
1: So I think that's all a, an interesting thought experiment. If you have any thoughts of your own, just feel free to head over to the website at StartupsTheRestOfUs.com. Leave a couple of your thoughts in the comments. And with that, we'll leave it for today. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690. Or you can email it to us at questions at StartupsTheRestOfUs.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Startups and visit StartupsTheRestOfUs.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.